Hey, it's Jim Paff again, and this is the Against Nice podcast, where we believe that nice people are evil because they want to run your lives. We promote culture and government that values voluntary decisions left up to you. This is a way to promote justice and kindness that thinks about the needs of others before ourselves. Go to our website, politicsisntnice.com, and join our email list. The button's right there at the top right, politicsisntnice.com. So today, have a special treat, uh, my friend Congressman Jim Banks. We've been friends for a lot of years, had a great discussion on... Well, you'll hear about it, uh, you know, what's going on in China, what's happening um, in Congress, how we got to know one another. Jim's uh, been a good friend for a lot of years, and you're going to find it to be a very interesting discussion. So no further ado, we're going to get to our podcast. Welcome, everyone, to the Against Nice podcast. I got someone who's not very nice on here. Of course, he has to, happens to be a friend for a while. It's Congressman Jim Banks, and uh, actually, I'm... He knows I'm the one that's really not very nice, but uh, that's right. anyway, Jim, welcome. Hey, great to be with you, Jim. So, uh, so now, how did I get to know? How did I get to meet you? How did that happen? Well, it was a lifetime ago, as I recall. Um, I was a college Republican at Indiana University. Um, my my very first political experience was interning for a guy that you and I both know really well, um, Chris Crabtree, who worked for Congressman John Hostetler, who represented what we called back then the Bloody Ape District of Indiana. Uh And um, so I I interned in his Bloomington office, the the federal district office in Bloomington. You were a close friend of Chris Crabtree and others that worked in that office and a big part of the Hostetler uh, campaign uh, organization, which was well known um, back in its prime, and um, I got the I, I met you during those experiences, but I got to know you best as you. I don't know if you remember this or not, but you were the campaign manager for a candidate for mayor of Bloomington. His name was Albert Clemens, and Bloomington, Indiana, as you know, is the socialist republic capital yeah. of the Midwest. And um, or is it uh, the, the socialist capital of the Midwest? And, and it is um, the uh, Berkeley of the Midwest. Let's put it that yes. way. So there was no way a Republican could win uh, the mayor's race in Bloomington at that time, and probably, I mean, they you know back. I suppose back in the day it was competitive. So re- Republicans uh, decided not to field a candidate. So you and I worked for a my. This was the very first campaign, Jim, I ever worked on. Yeah. Uh, for Albert Clemens for mayor, he was an independent. He ran as an independent candidate. He got absolutely, um, in, in spite of your uh, political abilities as campaign manager, <laughs> and I was the volunteer press secretary on the campaign. I got to write a few press releases. Yeah. Uh, in spite of all that, I think he he was lucky to get twenty five percent of the vote. But that was yeah. my first. That was my first campaign experience. That's how I got to know you. My 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 fondest memory of that campaign was Albert Clemens, who was a very nice man, local business guy, not not a politician, probably never ran for office before then or since. Um, I remember one day, this was a big day, this was a big deal for me. He brought uh, pizza to our campaign meeting. And as a college kid, start, starving my <laughs> pizza way Pizza is life. <laughs> free pizza was, um, I, I would do anything for a free pizza. So he brought the pizza into our campaign meeting. It was me, you, and Chris Crabtree and Albert Clemens. And I remember um, he dropped the pizza in the parking lot. And when he opened the lid of the pizza box, there were, there were like stones, there were rocks like on top of the pizza. And I remember picking the rocks off because there was no way I was going to let that pizza go to waste. That's <laughs> yeah. the only thing I got out of that race, except for my friendship with you. And yeah. ever since then, it seems like our lives have um, intertwined in significant ways. I'm, I'm grateful for your friendship, Jim, from Indiana to live in, we lived in Colorado for a number yep. of years together and worked to focus on the family. And, um, you, you, you've been a big part of my life and, and I, I hope, uh, vice versa. So it's great yep. to be with you on your podcast. I hope, I hope that this podcast goes on, uh, to become a very big thing as I expect that it will, uh, for you. Congratulations. It's great to be one of your first guests. Well, thanks. Um, yeah, I'm I'm too piddly to mean anything. So hopefully, because you're on here, it's gonna really fly, and I'm looking forward to that. You know, uh, 
I, I still remember, I, I mean, visually remember when I first met you, you were sitting at, at one of these desks that had two or three phones on it doing casework or something. I don't know precisely what you were doing, but you had your head down, you know, and, uh, oh, oh, hi. Oh, hi. You know, when I was introduced to you, by the way, what's Chris Crabtree doing these days? Well, that's, that's a funny, uh, part of the story too. I, it, it was my first political experience to be his intern the summer of 1999, I believe, because that election was in the fall of 1999 that you and I worked on. And so that was my, that was my very first experience in politics. Um, but before that, I was president of a college ministry. And by the way, John Hostetler came on campus and gave his testimony and spoke to our college ministry. And that, that was what um, inspired me to go to work for him. And Chris Crabtree was with him, staffing him that day. Mm -hmm. So um, Chris worked for John Hostetler for a number of years. He went on to work for another congressman named Mike Sodrell. Uh, he was chief of staff to Becky Skillman, our great former lieutenant governor. Then he went to work for another not very well-known congressman named Mike Pence, uh, <laughs> who went on to become governor and he worked for Governor Pence. And now the end of, the, end of that story, Jim, is that now he, now he works for me. He's one of the, the uh, leaders in my office. And so I got to learn from him for many years and learn about politics yeah. from him, guys like him and you. And now I get to work with him uh, in this capacity too. It's a, he's a, he's a big part of what we do every day. And I'm, I'm grateful for his leadership in my office. I hope uh, you're not embarrassed for people to know that like we've been on the phone two or three times a week or, or almost every week for 20 years now. Well, I don't tell people that, but yeah. That's <laughs> true. Maybe. Yeah, maybe, maybe I hope, uh, I hope that's a good thing for people to know. So I, I don't mind it a bit. We, I appreciate yeah. the wisdom that you, um, that you provide over the phone all the time. Well, there's, I, I got to tell you, John Hosteller. So, you know, um, th th maybe it seems like small politics to some people that are listening to this nationally, but John Hostetler is in some ways one of the best congressmen we've ever had. This guy who I got to get him on the show, by the way, I got to, he's, he's kind of hard to drag into these things as you know, but uh, he, the guy's brilliant. Understand. I mean, he is, uh, Rand Paul before Rand Paul in the sense of just the heady approach to this, the thinking deeply through what's going on, certainly coming from that sort of uh, liberty-minded bent in politics, uh, fearless, capable, uh, just one of the best people I've ever known in my life. No doubt. I mean, he was a man, man of principle, and that's the, that's the high watermark for me. Is ha I, He was the first political boss that I ever had that I got to, that I got the chance to work for. I worked on his campaigns and uh, back in the 2000, 2002 cycles and went on to work for a lot of other people, but he was the first uh, political um, uh, person that I had a chance to work for. And I learned so much from him and, and I, I'm grateful for that to this point. It was the first, the first opportunity that I had, but the incredible thing about that is as principled as he was, Jim was all the people that we worked with, in that organization, like they, all the people that I got to know, I mean, from volunteers, people that worked on the staff from, you know, I talked about Chris Crabtree yourself. Mm -hmm. um, of course, you know, the governor of Indiana, Eric Holcomb, I got to know him when I worked on those campaigns back in the day, because he, he ran uh, one of John Hostetler's field staffs and Kurt Smith, who ran Indiana family Institute for a number of years, did a lot of other things was a part of that organization. Lot, lot of, lot of other people that were a part of, those years that I got to know politically in the state. I, 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 when I was in college, I would um, move to Evansville where the campaign was based and that was the, the main part of that district. And then I would go back to Bloomington, back to IU. And I did that a couple of times and uh, really treasure those experiences that I had that I learned, I learned so much fundamentally and foundationally about politics that, that uh, have carried me to this day. Yeah. It's, it's a form of experiences. Um, of course, we got important things to talk about, but uh, but I, let's go back to that college experience. So you were in college in the late '90s. I was in the '80s. I see a radical difference in the college campus environment. And by the way, I've 
I felt as a conservative, you know, you were constantly being attacked. Of course, I didn't give a dang, you know, but it's because I loved, you know, really that interchange. But, you know, it was kind of one of those things where you could go play, pick up basketball afterwards and be fine with those people. And I'm not sure that it's that way anymore. Yeah, I, I, I mean, I, I don't, I don't uh, go to college in this moment, but I can't imagine what our college students go, go through. Um, I mean, that's the divisive uh, nature of the left um, and, and dismissing the thoughts of those on the right. I mean, I, I remember when I was a college Republican or when I got to Indiana University in the uh, late 90s, for me, I, I, I had never thought deeply about politics before, but when I got there, that's when I realized that that's when I started to form my worldview, my, my political uh, views as a, as a conservative. And uh, that, that was formative to me. But you're right, you could get together with college Democrats and have interesting conversations and debates. And these days that, that doesn't occur because, because uh, those on the left uh, would rather ostracize you as a conservative than to get together with you and have a meaningful, substantive debate about the issues of the day. And I think that's, uh, that's something that we're losing on our college campuses. But to your point, Jim, I think that's systematic of uh, the nature of our universities and how they're how they're governed the type of professors that are hired the type of faculty that are hired at a, at a college like indiana university um, they're they're not open to free thought and debate and and the viewpoints of especially those on the right and that, that's that's unfortunate I, as a college republican i remember it was so much fun we would uh, the, the one experience that that i had when i was president of the college republicans we brought ann coulter to indiana <laughs> university that was like in in 2000 or 2001 and uh she's very a very uh, very controversial speaker today but even back then she was too and that that was fun for us to bring uh, a conservative to the campus to articulate those viewpoints and those experiences helped form me uh, form my conservative uh, thoughts and views as well and i i'm thankful for that but i don't i do worry about the college students of today who don't have that ability to interact with people that don't think like they do or are fully unwilling to because of the nature of the culture of these universities that don't uh, welcome free thought and expression of different viewpoints. And that's uh, something that as conservatives that we need to be thinking more deeply about and do something, whatever we can to, to change the scope of that, to promote uh, uh, free speech and, and uh, expression on college campuses. It, it's a good lead in to, I mean, what, the whole theme of this podcast, because I think, uh, you know, you, the, the way you term it is, is actually very good because you talk about how, you know, Democrats try to ostracize conservatives, but you just don't often, you do in some ways, but we're seeing people on the right, wherever they happen to be on the right and spectrum, uh, being victimized rather than adjudicating, pushing forth, a set of ideas in an aggressive way. And this is why I reject the concept of niceness. That's the kind of the colloquial one. You know, I say often, I've probably told you this many times, but that uh, bumper sticker I saw one time that said, mean people suck. You know, it's kind of the anthem of the nice person. So you suck because you're not very nice, you know, it's that kind of thing. And, and the, op the opposite way of uh, handling that is, really, I reassert kindness, you know, because niceness is how do you make me feel? Is it pleasurable for me to be around you? Kindness is, it seeks a set of ideals that are ultimate ideals, that are fundamental ideals of truth, and seeks and hopes for those ideas to be implemented in society for the good of everybody. In the process, people get upset for you uh, pushing those. You know, it's nice people believe in social justice. Kind people believe in justice because social justice is about someone's plan on how to change everything. Justice is about getting fair treatment and appropriate treatment for everybody on an equal basis in spite of what they think or feel. And yet this is a, a real challenge, I think, for people on the right, whether it's the conservative right or the libertarian right wherever we're at is starting to reassert this every once in a while you got to be tough but for the most part you just got to be assertive 
and purposeful and not back down and be good at the political game, you know, whether in Congress, Congress is like freaked out. You can't get anything really good done anywhere. I always often wonder why the heck you want that job, but uh, you know what I'm saying? This is, this is something that's got to change. Yeah. Let me, let me tell you a quick story, Jim, about um, someone who I, I think gets this more than anybody. And that's our, that's our president. I mean, president Trump yeah. has taught us how to, how to fight back, how to, how to be tough, how to, how to, uh, how to never back down in, in our beliefs and, and be effective in doing so. I've had a lot of experiences with this president that, um, you know, for me are, are pinch me moments, right? I mean, where I'm with him and, uh, in a small setting and get to spend time with them. And these experience coming from a small town in Indiana from, you know, son of a dad who retired from working in a factory, a mom who was a cook in a nursing home, never in my wildest dreams or in their wildest dreams would I have some of these experiences to spend uh, with firsthand with, uh, with any president, but especially with this president. I remember um, he flew into Indiana a couple of years ago and I had the chance to meet him at the airport. And um, he, he walked down the stairs of Air, Air Force One and, and I got the chance to greet him. I, I was the first in line and one of my colleagues was second in line. And, and then, there was, then there were a handful of other people that the president knew from Indiana. And the president walked down the stairs and, and um, uh, I forget exactly what was going on that day, but he was getting, he was getting beat up for something and the, the media was trying to pressure him not to hold a public event that day. And he was in Indiana to speak to the Future Farmers of America conference. So he walked down the stairs, I shook his hand, my, my colleague shook his hand and then he, then he went on down the line, but he turned around and he looked at the two of us and he said, um, you two, Get in the car. Get in the car with me and ride in the car with me. Of course, that the the uh, the lim the presidential limo, the beast, right? Yeah. And um, which I think was brand new. It was one of the first times that uh, the beast had been the new beast had been rolled out. And we were riding uh, from Indianapolis Airport to uh, what's now Banker's Life Fieldhouse. You probably remember it as it was Conseco Fieldhouse, or yeah. you know, probably another name before that. Um, so we um, we drove. Uh, we were in the car, the limo with him about 45 minutes in the motorcade. And the whole time he was talking about how important it was. The, the media was trying to pressure him not to hold a public event. And he's, he, he told us, said, you don't, you don't back down. You don't, you don't back down. You don't let them, don't let them win by pressuring you not to go out and do something or say something or pressure you to, to um, re reverse your stance when you, because when you back down, they win and you look weak for doing it. And I think this, this president understands that, there's strength that comes from being tough and uh, be, being tough and, and uh, assertive in what you believe and not, not allowing the left to pressure you or intimidate you out of speaking out about uh, the important viewpoints that you have. And that's what I appreciate so much. This is the, the toughest president of my lifetime. He gets that in such a, such a um, significant way that's made him so effective in his first term, I have no doubt that he's going to have a second term and that second term is going to be even better than the first term after he wins his reelection because he's going to have even more momentum behind him for four more years to keep doing what he's done to disrupt the swamp and the nature of American politics and the way that the American people are so desperately want him to do. But that's that what you're talking about is what this is the mantra this president adopts and why I think he's uh, such a is going to go down in history as one of the best presidents that we've ever had. You know, uh, and with all the, like, I don't always agree on the policy end, but it's, so there'd be something I'm like, what the, and then suddenly he's doing exactly the right thing, or at least the thing that I, I think that should be there. But I think the guy actually sort of listens, maybe too much sometimes, but I think really he does listen in a good way. And, um, and, and I think that I, I, I want everyone to be, have that same attitude that you described. But not everybody's got to do it exactly like Donald Trump. They just need to do it like them. So a lot of people are going to go out there and try to be exactly like Donald Trump. You know, they think they got to call people names or whatever. And maybe that's useful and helpful. That's sort of the thing that fits for him. But what should fit for all of us is this. We're not going to back down. I mean, you and I talk about this a lot, but get these votes that come up. And I'm, there are some times I'm like, Republicans, 
my gosh, if you just do the right thing, everyone's going to rally around you. Just like they did the Tea Party movement in part happened, whether they deserved it or not, because Republicans stood together against Obamacare and said, we're not going to do it. And because they did, they came this close, except for one Michigan congressman, to destroying it. And people got inspired by that. This is the kind of inspiration that we miss and, and that doesn't happen enough. And, uh, but, but it's got to be more than just being good at opposing something. It's got to be having a fundamental set of ideals and pushing hard to get those things inserted into society, not just in the political realm, but everywhere. And we need a lot more of that. And I think, I, I think by the way, I, I knew Andrew Bart, Breitbart for a little while. And I had this conversation with him. He said he loved Christians. But he said, um, you know, Christians are too nice. They won't fight back. So I see it as my job to fight back for them. <laughs> we, we need to fight back for ourselves. Now that, that was a lesson the president was trying to impress on us that day. That my colleague was, a, was another younger member of Congress. And he was telling us, he was sort, sort of mentoring us in the limo that day as we were riding with him for 45 minutes about not, not backing down. I mean, I'll, I'll never forget that. Such a powerful lesson from him. And what, what he did that day was then he flew to Chicago, I think, and held a very public rally or event and was criticized for doing it. But he understood that if he would have canceled that event, he would have looked weak for doing it, looked like he was pressured and intimidated into canceling it and understood that you got to You got to go out there and do your thing. And, and for him, uh, you know, instructing me and another young member of Congress not to back down from the left. I've thought about that. That's, that was over two years ago. I've thought about that a lot um, over the last couple of years because every day something happens, somebody, you know, on the, a, a figure on the left will tweet at me or someone in the media will, will uh, come after me or, or, or left, left-wing uh, trolls on Twitter or uh, on social media or in public. You know, if you get caught up in that and get intimidated and pivot away from what you believe in, then, then you don't belong in this game. There's no, there's to your point, which is the, the point of this podcast, I believe, is to inspire us to not be intimidated just as the president was mentoring me and, and my colleague, don't back down. Um, keep, do, keep doing what we were elected to do, which is advance conservative principles and speak out about what makes America great and how we're going to make it even greater. And that, that's what I signed up for. And that's what I'm proud to do every day, Jim. And appreciate uh, all that you've done to help me, inspire me to do that. So one of those big challenges is uh, China. And I know that you're doing a whole lot in that regard. Uh, it's kind of gotten out in front of it. I, I know I've been kind of cheering you on in that regard as well. I think that it's, you know, I'm a free trader. I believe in, uh, you know, open on uh, opening up the economic supply lines between countries. I'm all for that. I come from a very libertarian perspective on that. It, it fit ideologically. The one weakness sometimes of that argument, though, is when you have countries like China that are really abusing it. Now, we also set up, set up the means of abuse called the World Trade Organization, and they have taken advantage of that. Of course, we haven't been aggressive enough on our end economically to be a competitor. I mean, we've got great competitive companies in this country. I'm not I'm not saying that. I'm talking about from this where government interacts. We haven't been an aggressive competitor back with them. Uh, WTO receives complaints about the United States constantly. And in part with China's influence, we lose almost all of those. We turn ourselves in that interaction from the 600-pound gorilla economically into just another monkey in the room, I guess, so to say. I, you know. What, what what do we need? What's wrong with that situation right now? And what are we needing to do at this stage? Well, like you, Jim, I've, I've uh, I'm a, as a conservative uh, who believes deeply in free trade, I, I feel like we've been sold a bill of goods for most of my life, right? I mean, <clears throat> clearly uh, China's strategy has been to manipulate our, our trade practices, and for, for decades, they've been taking advantage of the United States of America and, and, of, and of American workers and of the American economy. So 
President Trump is the first president in my lifetime to get tough on China. He ran on a platform of, of uh, better trade deals with China and was criticized by some on the right uh, for talking about um, fair trade with, with, with China. Now, I, um, I, I fully applaud the president and gone down that path. I mean, he's, he's, uh, he negotiated the phase one trade deal, which by the way, China's not living up to its end of it. And the president has been putting pressure on them to hold them accountable to do that. What, what, what is extremely clear at this point is that China's efforts to dominate the United States of America on a global scale, economically and militarily, um, has come, come to fruition because of the lack of Republican and Democrat presidents in the past do, doing anything to hold them accountable for it until, until this president. Uh, what's what's startling though about all this is uh, I serve on the Armed Services Committee, as you know. Na national defense, uh, national security issues are my passion in the Congress. Uh, what the other thing President Trump did, by the way, at the beginning of his term, was the national security strategy pivoted from a focus on CENTCOM uh, wars in Iraq and Afghanistan to more of the global threat of of uh, Russia and especially China, and named. Russia and China as our strategic competitors are for the first time named China as our adversary when it comes to national security. We've seen the rise of China's military, their efforts in the South China Sea, how they've, how they've um, leapfrogged the United States in innovation in national security on a, in a lot of ways. Um, and, and we've done so little to keep up with that. I mean, we, we've built uh, We've built up a military that's that's confronting the the uh, conflict in the Middle East, but it's not a military that could defeat China uh, in a in a war of any sort. Um, I fear, and it's why it's why we need to do something about that. But what what uh, President Trump, what Republicans in Congress are trying to do is is uh, counter the the uh, China threat. In our with a whole of government approach of our own. I mean, right right now, there's no there's never been a well thought out strategy of a whole of government approach to confront the China threat economically and militarily. And that that's why McCarthy Kevin McCarthy put together this China task force a couple of weeks ago. And I'm I'm one of a dozen or so members who are a part of it. There are members that come from every single committee in the Congress: Ways and Means Committee to focus on trade deals, Financial Services Committee to focus on um, CFPS and a lot of our uh, international uh, financial organizations that, that the United States are a part of and how we can crack down on China's manipulation of those organizations. There, there are those of us concerned with national security issues, Armed Services Committee, uh, the propaganda war, the, the humanitarian aspect of this, the human rights abuses in China. This China task force is going to try to tackle all of these layers of the China threat and then by October 1st, we'll publish a report that will lay out this strategy. But what's, Jim, what's incredible about it is that Democrats have completely refused to come to the table. Pelosi originally told McCarthy that we would make it a bipartisan task force. There'd be an equal number of Democrats and Republicans. And then she, and then six months ago, she backed out of it. And, and the reason why, Jim, I believe is that she understands that President Trump, because he's been tough on China, he uh, he he uh, he has the mantle of a of a of the president who's the first president in my lifetime who's confronted China. She believes that if Democrats participate in an effort like this, it would it would put them on the same side as President Trump. So, in her fairy tale uh, uh, mindset, uh, she she believes that it's important for Democrats to abandon the China threat versus partnering with President Trump to do something about it. And that's the, that's the shameful nature of American politics today is that you have one party who, I mean, give, I, I won't give Speaker Pelosi credit for a whole lot, but I will give her credit that for 30 years, she was one of the loudest China hawks in the Congress until President Trump became president. And then, then she decided not to, not to speak out about China in the same way that she had for decades past. And that's, that's a sad reality, but that ultimately, Jim, I think that's what's on the ballot in November. I mean, you got you got Joe Biden, who's been um, a, a China appeaser. His son has uh, uh, corruptly um, used his father's position as vice president to make uh, millions of dollars from the Chinese. Uh, we found out this week that Joe Biden won't open up the 
uh, financial records of his foundation because because of China Chinese ties uh, to ch to money money potentially from the Chinese Communist Party that's flowing into that foundation. Uh, we can speculate because he won't open the records to show prove prove that's not the case. So you have one president you have one presidential candidate and Joe Biden is a China appeaser, and then you have President Trump who's been the big, the, the toughest president on China in my lifetime. That's what's on the ballot. And you have Speaker Pelosi who doesn't want to do anything about the China threat. And you have Republicans who have formed a task force for the first time in American history. Probably the most important thing I'll ever do in Congress is this task force to, to uh, lay out this strategy. So then you have the difference of the parties. Which party do you want to control the Congress? One that wants to roll over for China or one who wants to confront them and work with the president to do so. That, that's what's on the ballot in November. Um. <clears throat> You know, uh, the, when I was in uh, Taiwan and went back when I was in Congress, I went to a staff delegation tour to Taiwan in 2014, I think it was, or thir it might, I think it might have been 2013. So anyway, uh, as part of that tour, it was just me and other chiefs of staff at the time. Uh, we sat down with the um, military leaders in Taiwan. I was, you, know, you already know what the situation is, but I was kind of uh, awed a little bit because these guys getting being translated from Chinese to me. So sometimes it's hard to make that emotional connection, but I, I'm, I'm still looking at their faces. These guys are pretty determined. They are ready to protect that island for the three days, frankly, that they can do it uh, if China ever decide to seriously deploy. But what's happening right now in the South China Sea is they're suddenly getting surrounded by islands <laughs> that, that China's building to provide bases. I mean, I, I would imagine, I haven't dug into it deeply, but just having seen where some of these islands are, these guys are going to have to entirely change their defense strategy on a first strike with China. Of course, our commitment is to, to come and support that. But... Um, which I hope remains strong, which I hope is strong enough. But these guys are intentional about taking over that region and continuing to influence where they're building bases all over the world. Uh, you know, which I, everybody has in a sense a right, every country has a, in, in a sense a right to do that. The problem is when you've got a country like China, which is intent upon using that for something to oppose us as opposed to do good anywhere. But if the that's South the, China Sea gets taken over, uh, if the South China Sea gets taken over, that is at, at least a third or more of all commercial sea traffic runs through that area uh, around the world. There are a couple other hot spots, but that is really the biggest hot spot for international trade that goes over the ocean waters anywhere, and they're intent upon controlling it. Yeah, that, that's the key point, Jim. Um, it, it's tempting for, I think, Americans to, to think uh, to themselves, well, let, let China have Asia. Why, why does it matter if China's uh, dominating the South China Sea and blocking American uh, commercial vessels from or, or military uh, uh, efforts in that part of the world? I, I understand it's tempting for Americans to think that. But what we, what we have to recognize is that China's strategy is not to just dominate the South China Sea. That's dominating that region is all a part of their grand strategy to dominate the United States of America. And Michael Pillsbury in his, in his uh, very important book, uh, The 100 Year Marathon, which all of your listeners should go on Amazon and buy today and read it. It, it was published in 2015. It lays out this incredible case. It was a, it's a foundational read for me. There are a lot of other important books to read as well on this front, but China's blatant efforts to dominate the United States of America um, start with dominating the South China Sea. And then the Belt and Road Initiative, which connects them throughout the world, all of that, those efforts are to block the United States um, and to promote their own totalitarian global regime. Look no further than what's going on in Hong Kong today, where the, the Hong Kongers' rights are being taken away from them by China imposing their own totalitarian 
um, values and regime upon the people, the, the, pe the people of Hong Kong who were accustomed to their democracy and their freedoms, now it's being taken away from them. That's exactly what China wants to do to the United States of America. And we can't allow them to do that. Our, our interests abroad are in contrast with China's interests abroad because we are a, a free nation that promotes uh, democracy and freedoms, um, human rights around the world, while China wants to take all of that away. And uh, that, that's why there's such, that's why the military component of this is so important, but the economic uh, uh, component of all this is, is uh, critically important too. And why we have to do something about it, why I appreciate that President Trump is so focused on it, why I'm glad that Kevin McCarthy, the Republican leader, put this task force together, and why I'm so ashamed that Democrats in Congress won't do anything about it. Well, I, I want to hit on this thing when you talk about take away human rights around the world, because that might seem real radical. Well, no, they just don't do it in their country. They're just trying to you know, be influential, take us over economically. No, I think it really is about that. But I want to get to that in just a second, because there are some domestic implications of that. But staying in the Asian region, I've been saying for years, and you know, I used to do business in India for a little while, for a couple of years. Um and know the country well, been back and forth quite a few times, still in contact with people in India uh, every month at least, sometimes every week through a month. So we have not made a serious effort to expand our connections with India, which is a free country. I mean, they have their political problems or whatever little things. But they go through maybe a slightly more severe form of a Republican form of government than we do, but only slightly so. They are committed to that form of government, and yet we've consistently uh, cast ourselves out to China economically. And we've done some of it with India, obviously, but, but we haven't forged that as our key relationship in the region other than Japan. Why is that and what's changing? I am encouraged that uh, Trump is forging a relationship with Prime Minister Modi in India, and that's very useful, and I'm sure it's part of all this, but why haven't we done that, and how are we going to get that done? Yeah, I, those, are, those are the big questions of the day, and I, I'm glad that President Trump is that leader that understands these dynamics better than anybody. It's a, it's a puzzle piece globally. The, the relationship with India is so critical to combating the uh, China, as China aligns with other countries like Pakistan in the region, and China tries to get their tentacles into other countries within that region. Um, the relationship with India and um, uh, President Modi and President Trump is a, is a key, uh, key pivotal relationship in that region as a counterbalance. So President Trump gets that. I've had conversations with the president directly about these issues. I know he, um, you know, I know, I know, I know he gets it, understands it, and 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 once again, let's do something about it. What's what's painfully clear, though, Jim, is that you have um, Chairman Xi and uh, some other adversaries around the world who are trying to out outlast President Trump. Right? I mean, they're they're hoping President Trump loses. The November election because they want Joe Biden, who will be like like Obama, will be um, an appeaser, will be soft uh, on uh, on China, if not outright um, favorable in their interests over the interests of the United States of America, as we've seen from President Obama and presidents of the past. So you're gonna you're gonna have this dynamic for the next six months where you have our adversaries try to outlast. President Trump, and I, I hope that won't be the case. I mean, I hope the American people see this for what it is and they resoundly reelect President Trump be, to continue to advance this posture. And if President Trump has another four years, imagine what he'll be able to do to advance uh, these important issues. Well, India, we need to be talking about India a lot more. He's, he's done, I'm not criticizing it. He has tried. He went over there. I talked to my Indian friends, by the way, who saw that. Uh, his visit and he was in that stadium and the Indian people just, I mean, amazingly uh, erupted in cheers when he entered the stadium there. It was sincere. The Indian folks I know, and I know quite a few over there, that was sincere. You know, this, they're not like some totalitarian country where you prop up a, an audience uh, under threat. These people were there sincerely. That India needs to be on our lips almost as much as China. In my opinion, I think it is 
a key partner for us for the future because they do believe they love they love Americans. By the way, it is the largest English speaking country in the world by far. People don't know that. They've got about 425 million English speakers in India. We've only got a population of over, you know, 320 million maybe right now. Uh, they've got a massive amount of English speakers. There's a great connection there. There are, there are English speakers in China, but nothing on par as with India. So that's a natural connection for us. So we really need to take advantage of that. But uh, so getting back to what you said about China and imposing a totalitarian form of government anywhere they can around the world. I mean, that is literally what they want. And the reason they want it is because it makes, they believe that it makes for an ordered society that can get certain things done that they want. It's not just a political matter. That's a huge part of it, obviously, in any communist country, the political aspect is huge. But if they can encourage other countries to be conformed to a similar type of government that then the, to the one that they have, that makes it easier for them in those trade deals. There's this the greed type thing too. By the way, ever since says corporations are greedy, uh, what about governments? You know, even better governments than theirs. But that's real critical. One way they're doing it is through technology. And they're trying to do it here in the United States. We had successfully, for example, pushed aside this effort to bring Huawei into our 5G development uh, for mobile phones here in the country. But I just recently am hearing more talk, once again, realigning with Huawei here in this country. We just had recently uh, England. They forged ahead with, uh, with Huawei and 5G. Now there's talk about them pulling it back. I don't know precisely how far into it they are at this stage and how much they actually can pull it back, but they're talking about it. This is one of those ways China is trying to do that. They, they do produce good technology, most of which they stole from us. They have brilliant and talented people there, but they've stolen most of their technology from us. And they want to implement that in countries as a way of control too. So what, am I right about this? And what are we doing about it? Yeah, let me give you two examples, Jim. Um, uh, first of all, President Macron uh, in France called Chairman Xi and they talked about China sending aid to France, which China agreed to do. But then Chairman Xi told President Macron, um, we're going to send you this large uh, shipment of PPE. I don't, I don't know what it was, if it was money or PPE or, uh, or what it was, but, uh, but you, have to, you have to allow Huawei to come into your country to uh, do business in France. So that's, that's the way China operates. Also look at, I'll, I'll never forget, you and I both are Hoosiers, Jim, and we love basketball. Uh, we love the, uh, obviously the Indiana Hoosiers college basketball team, but we also love the, the Indiana Pacers. And so I, I'll never forget um, the way that I felt when uh, you had a, a NBA uh, uh, official uh, speak out against what China was doing in Hong Kong and then China backlash against the NBA. And then you had all these, all these NBA stars speaking out uh, against the United States of America. And, and instead were buying in to, and selling the Chinese propaganda to uh, basketball fans in the United States of America and, and uh, choosing China over the free people of Hong Kong and backlashing against the United States of America. That's because of the entanglement of the NBA in, into the Chinese uh, 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 financial markets. And um, that, that's the type of pressure that China puts on institutions in the West to, to, uh, to uh, spill out their propaganda. And we can't allow that to happen moving forward. And that's why the, the American people today more than ever are awakened to the China threat. They don't want us to ever go through what we're going through at the moment with the coronavirus pandemic. They want their leaders to do something about it. And um, that's uh, nationwide. That's Republicans, Democrats, independents. They overwhelmingly understand that China is a threat to the United States. And they blame China for their negligence that brought this COVID-19 pandemic uh, to the United States and the rest of the world. They want us to do something about it, yet their Democrat representatives in Congress are saying, we don't, we're not going to participate in a task force to tackle these issues because then we would be agreeing with President Trump. And the, I think the public, the public finds that as absurd 
as it really is, and, and they want us to do something about it. And hopefully they throw these Democrats out of power uh, in the November election and say enough is enough. We're not going to allow um, your, your lack of leadership on the most important issue of the day any longer. Well, you know, the COVID pandemic doesn't only reveal the, uh, the problems with China directly. Obviously, it started there. It is the Chinese virus. Okay, let's be honest about it. It's the Wuhan virus. Uh, they lied. They neglected their relationships with others. They used the World Health Organization to cover up what was going on. For whatever reason, malignant or benign, they were either embarrassed or, frankly, didn't give a care if, if this spread. I think it's more the benign thing. But um, the indirect... Uh, part of this is that we had mostly Democrat governors all over this country, frankly, treating American citizens during this pandemic uh, the same way that the Chinese would and shutting them in their houses. Of course, people are willingly complying, but again, that's how communism succeeds is willing uh, compliance, not, uh, not entirely forced. You just, your force goes against that small group that resist, but most people willingly comply. Most people in China willingly comply to that. Um, these Democrat governors are making a trial run of that. And we've had pandemics where you'd have localized shutdowns or whatever, the during the Spanish flu of 1918 and onward, you would have small shutdowns, never anything nationwide. We had uh, Woodstock taking place in 1968, right in the middle of the Hong Kong flu, which was a coronavirus as well that got to this country, killed 100,000 people, population 200, 2 million, 200 million. There's a, there are many ways, and this is, again, why I've got this against nice approach to this podcast. The only way to break through this stuff is to have in the heart a passion to assert truth to stand for reality, to um, believe in principles and to assert them in culture and in politics. This, our only, our real defense against China's efforts is a change of heart in the American people and a renewed determination to oppose these ideals. And we can do everything we want. You know, you can be on this uh, task force, which is fine. I, I have no problem with that. I think there's a lot to learn and those things can be useful, but that ain't going to get it done. I mean, you can't do enough in government. It's got to change in the hearts of people. Yeah. And I, I believe the American people are there more than ever, Jim, and they, they want us to do something about it. I'm hearing more of my constituents reach out and ask me, how can I, how, how can I find American made products made in America products? So I, don't uh, buy made in China products anymore. And I think the American people are there. They want, they, they're, they're willing to pay a few more cents for a, an article of clothing or a few more dollars for an appliance if it's made in America instead of made in China. And they want their leaders, myself, the president, others to disentangle our supply chain from China's economy as well. And I, I, I hope that process starts right now. There are ways we can do it. The president's talking about it find ways to re-incentivize American companies to bring their supply chain back to the United States of America. There are ways we can do that. I wanna fully explore those options. We can start with pharmaceuticals. And by the way, the VA, the largest healthcare uh, provider in the world, purchases a vast amount of their pharmaceuticals and healthcare products that are made in China. And, and some of those products have been tangled up because China is withholding uh, uh, pharmaceuticals and medical products from the United States of America. And um, there, we, we, one, way, one place we can start is say that the VA will no longer purchase made in China pharmaceuticals or medical products. So my, my staff is getting ready to pull me out of the podcast, Jim. I, I, it, it's been a pleasure to be with you. But before I leave, I wanted to go back to college, my college experience with you for a minute in the late 90s. And I'm drinking a Starbucks uh, coffee, which is a, one of my addictions. <laughs> and I noticed um, a mutual friend of ours last week was beating up on me on Facebook, Chuck, Chuck Quillett from uh, mm -hmm. Northeast Indiana, one of the founders of Indiana Policy Review. He was uh, giving me hell for drinking, uh, oh, yeah. for having a Starbucks coffee cup in my hands. But it reminds me um, when we were, when you and I were back in Bloomington in those days, the very first Starbucks that I ever went to 
was opened right across from the law school. Um, right, right. I remember in, uh, it's still right, there. Right across the street from the Sample Gates in Bloomington, and yep. I remember the the first few weeks that it was opened. Uh, an organiza- a very violent activist organization called the Earth Liberation Front, ELF, for short. They re- they threw bricks through the window of this Starbucks to protest corporate America coming to coming to Bloomington, Indiana. And Jim, I remember us having this conversation about this. Yeah, that's yeah. so, so a good story. I was the college Republican president at the time, and I said, uh, you know, let's do something about this because this Starbucks open. This was you know late '90s. Starbucks was it wasn't new, but it was new to Bloomington, Indiana, and most of Indiana at that point. And uh, the, and these violent activists were throwing bricks through the window every night, and people were afraid to go there to the Starbucks. So we decided to start having a weekly Thursday night uh, coffee uh, meeting at the, at the Starbucks in Bloomington, and it, it grew into dozens of, it kind of became the the meeting place of conservatives and college Republicans on the Hill and, and, and conservative figures in the community like you. And we would get together there and mm-hmm. share, share a cup of Starbucks coffee. And to this day, it's been a bad addiction of mine. I understand the, some of the political protests that Chuck Quillett and others have with, um, with Starbucks, but it, it does harken me back to those days. And remember that it was, it was, it was people like you and Crabtree and, um, so many others in that community that that adopted me and taught me about politics and nurtured me along the way. And I, I appreciate that so much, that friendship that I have with all of you that comes from those days in the late 90s in Bloomington, where I first learned about politics to this day now as a congressman. And with that, Jim, it's great to be with you. I got to go uh, hop on another call, but um, best of luck in your, uh, as you launch this podcast, I imagine it's going to go bananas from here and, and uh, your best days are yet to come. Well, we're excited about it. We've got a lot of good guests and uh, you've been a good friend, Jim, for a lot of years and I'm glad to have you on to help uh, roll it all out. So uh, have a great day. Thanks for joining me and uh, a lot of good information. And uh, folks, uh, oh, where do, where do people need to go for a uh, website? Now, follow, follow me on Twitter, at Rep Jim Banks, uh, first and foremost. You can, you can like me on Facebook as well at Congressman. Jim Banks, but go to Twitter first. We're active and um, you are. I'm, I'm, obs- I'm obsessed with my Twitter followers uh, growing every day. So at rep Jim Banks. You, we talk about it all the time. It's kind of fun. Well, hey, go have a great day, Jim Banks. Thanks. Thank you. Thank you for joining us today on the Against Nice podcast. And again, before you leave us, I just want to ask you, connect with us on our email list and our social media. Go to politicsisntnice.com. Click on the join our email list button. We'll get you information related to what we learned here today, but also um, other information that we're finding out along the way. It'll be a great resource for you. You can also go to our Facebook page, facebook.com forward slash against nice and our Twitter page at against nice. Go check us out there and we look forward to talking to you, getting your feedback, finding out more from you. Thanks. Have a great day.